You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we are back in the book of Ephesians. And our sermon series, if uh, you're new and you don't know, it's entitled United in Christ. And basically, we're just slowly going through the book of Ephesians and just seeing what God has for us through his word, in particular, in this, this particular book. Uh, one of the primary focuses of the book of Ephesians is a Christian's union with Christ. And so you'll see that theme over and over and over again, right? Uh, another theme would be a Christian's unity or union with other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Because of Christ. <laughs> so all y'all out there who are Christians, you, you are united to one another through your Savior, and so that theme emerges as well. And, you know, that's just kind of the overarching theme of the book of Ephesians. But in this sermon series, as I've said the last two weeks, there's a mini sermon series in Ephesians 1, chapter, or excuse me, verse 3 to 14. And so we're taking these particular verses extremely slowly. Uh, we got, I think, eight sermons just in those verses alone. And then there's a mini, mini sermon series, you know, that kind of tied in in between verses 3 to 14. So in the last two weeks, we've been in Ephesians 1, chapter 3, verse chapter 6. Excuse me, verse 3 to verse 6. And on uh, the first uh, sermon series, part 1 of this mini, mini sermon series, we looked at God's doctrine of election, his, his divine election. And then part 2 was about how is these two words that we read about in Ephesians 1 connected to election and adoption, which is in love. Like, that's huge. What does it mean for a sovereign God of the universe to elect somebody because he is loving? And further, as it's going to pertain to today, what does that mean about adoption, right? And so uh, we we took a good long look at those two particular words, inagave, or inagape, if you want to pronounce it that way. Uh, We took a look at that last week because, as we're going to see this week in part three of this mini, mini sermon series, um, we were also... Uh, adopted in love, and that's significant. So, if you if you were unable to listen to uh, part one or part two uh, of this little section of uh, the book of Ephesians, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because you'll see how it's all just kind of connected to one another. All right. Now, like I said, today is about adoption. What does that mean? And more more importantly, what does the Bible have to say about adoption? It's a word that we're familiar with. You've heard the word. You've had friends who have adopted or who've been adopted. Um, The Bible actually talks a lot about adoption. And so we actually want to know what what God says regarding that particular term and the significance of that term. So I'm going to briefly pray, and then we'll just go ahead and dive in to God's word. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and gracious. And as we've been seeing throughout the book of Ephesians, um, you are on mission to redeem your elect people through Jesus Christ. And that means you have chosen in eternity past a people for yourself. And you, and you chose out of love. And as it pertains to today, help us to see the value and know the depth, the depth of you adopting because you are indeed a loving and gracious Father. So we trust that you are with us in these moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I've never had the joy of um, experiencing adoption either as an adopted child or an adoptive parent. I've never had that joy. But over the years, I've known numerous people, numerous people, uh, especially Christians who have adopted children or they've been adopted by by their parents. Um, I've seen how uh, parents adopt children from orphanages, from countries that are you know basically in poverty, right? I, I've seen... Um, parents adopt children locally for various reasons. A birth mother forgoes her right, and uh, parents come in and say, "You know, we'll, we'll adopt that child. You know, just give birth, and then we'll adopt that child, and we'll take that child in as our our own." And you know, the motive to adopt can be different from one set of parents to the next. Uh, but what I what I realize though, there's always shared experiences, right? If you've been adopted, or if you've been an adoptive, been adopted parents. There's shared experiences uh, that exist. I think it's fair to say that adoption is, is a good and gracious act. Whether the adoptive parents are Christians or not Christians, 
Choosing to adopt means sacrifice. It just means sacrifice. It means giving up some liberties to invite other human beings into your into your world, into your home, into your space. So yeah, there's there's sacrifice. And I commend anyone who gives up gives up much to adopt a child. Uh, earthly adoptions are are a powerful, powerful metaphor of spiritual and divine adoptions. With earth, earthly adoptions, we, we do see a glimpse of this greater work being done by God as he adopts sons and daughters for himself. Unfortunately, I think unless you are an adopted parent or an adopted child, I do not think the church has understood the weight and beauty of this particular biblical concept. Um, adoption, that is. It's understood conceptually, like we, we understand it because we see it all around us. But do we really understand how our adoption as Christians, right, connects with everyday life? Like that's significant, right? You just can't know it or just read, read the term adoption in your Bible and be like, oh, I'm adopted. And not ask, what next? What does that mean? We have to ask that. We have to put faith into action, right? And so um, I do think that's, that's important. The fundamental question we need to answer is, what does it mean to be adopted into God's family? I mean, the question is, is, is important, especially, and I'm just going to use some, some modern day lingo. The question is really important, especially if you grew up like with daddy issues. <laughs> you've heard of, you, maybe you have that, maybe you have friends where they got daddy issues or whatever. And uh, you had them in the past and you continue to process maybe through hurt or pain or whatever. What you need to hear about divine adoption, because you've been adopted, Christian, by a good and gracious father who's like 100% for you. <laughs> 100% for you. And that and and looking looking at your life and how to move past hurt and pain is through the prism or through the understanding of God's fatherly care for you, uh, not because you've been hurt in the past by an earthly father. So we look to to God the Father. And more on that as I continue to go along in this particular sermon. So my my goal um, is to help you see the beauty of adoption. And for you to strive to live in security and freedom in light of what you know about God's gracious adoption for your life. I want you to know the the security and freedom that comes with being adopted by your Heavenly Father. In other words, if if, if you just pause and think about the things you fear in life, um, people struggle with uh, security of their salvation. Well, adoption is the remedy to that. So we really want to understand that for our lives. But we also want to make a pivot at the end of this particular sermon where we're actually looking to apply our adoption every single moment of our lives, right? In other words, if if you are a mini Christ, that's what you are. If you've been, been redeemed by God, you are a mini Christ. And if you're that, you should desire to model what you see from your gracious Father. Like I said already, we want to see our faith put into action. So let's kind of dial in some of the details. Let's start broad in terms of what adoption is biblically. Then we'll narrow in on, on Ephesians 1 and see what adoption is specifically there. Well, adoption is not an unusual category in the Bible. Uh, the Bible speaks very, very clearly about adoption. It, it appears in the Bible more than probably what you may even realize. Like maybe give you one a biblical story that highlights adoption. Moses. You've heard of Moses, right? Well, Moses was adopted. <laughs> uh, you might remember from Exodus 2 where we read about the birth of Moses. Like, But there's one problem. Uh, Moses was born in slavery and in Egypt, and Pharaoh was not excited that the Hebrew people at the time were having babies like crazy. Uh, that concerned him. The, the population of these slaves, these Hebrew slaves, was just growing immensely. So what, what does Pharaoh do? Well, he like lays down the edict. He says, all right, um, if males are born, uh, they need to be murdered. That's what he, that's what he said. Just going to murder the males. That's what we're going to do. Well, what do we, what do we have in, in Exodus 2? Well, we have um, the mother of Moses needing to make a very tough decision. You got one of two things. Well, Moses is going to get murdered or 
give him the slightest of chances to survive. So what does she do? She takes her baby boy, uh, puts him in a basket that can float on the water, uh, floats him down the river in hopes that someone might might get him and uh, he might have some type of life, right? Well, in God's providence, when we look at that particular story, the daughter of Pharaoh found Moses in the river. And her immediate instinct, think about this, her immediate instinct was to adopt this child. As a result, Moses became one of the most prolific figures in human history. Like, think about that. God used an adopted child just to change the world. And he did. Just go read the Pentateuch. Go read Exodus. You see what Moses, what God did in using Moses just to change the world. It was remarkable. It's a remarkable story. Well, here's another biblical perspective for adoption, right? Throughout the Old and the New Testament, in particular the Old Testament, we read about we read about God's heart for the fatherless. The fatherless. In antiquity, a child without a father is pretty, pretty, pretty close to being an orphan. Why? Well, it was through the father in which families were provided for. The families had protection, right? So if you want to do justice, love of mercy, and walk humbly before God, Micah 6.8, then you care for children without fathers. Now, even in today's society, you know, right now, 21st century America, uh, we see the importance of fathers and fatherhood. We really do. Children without a father, back in antiquity, uh, became a prime target for adoption. And when it did happen, it became a, they became a prime target. More to the point, there were obviously children without fathers and mothers, which made the child homeless. And you know the word orphan, right? Uh, perhaps you took note of this verse. So you at Redemption Hill, you've been going through the, the book of Isaiah in your community groups. And right out of the gate in Isaiah 1, you read this verse. Here it is from verse 17 of Isaiah 1. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. And what comes next? Defend the orphan. Defend the orphans and then plead for the widow as well. Defend the orphan. Isaiah 1, uh, 17 is one of hundreds of passages that speak of God's heart to care for hopeless people. In particular, children who are hopeless. So yeah, God is explicit through his word that those without parents are to be cared for. I think to some degree by society that's good if, if society is holding on to biblical principles. But more specifically, need to be cared for by the church. The church steps in and cares for those in need. We are on the front line of caring for orphans. And I think that has proved, proven historically, but the church cannot give up. We must take care for those who are orphaned. During the time when the book of Ephesians was written, uh, the circumstances of an orphan were equally dire, you know, in comparison to, say, Isaiah's time. There was no foster care system. None. There wasn't that. There were no adoptive agencies. Now you can go online, Google it, and you put in adoptive agencies in the Google search bar or whatever, and then you have like four or five just immediately come up. They're out there. That didn't exist in the book, in the book of Ephesians. To be, a mother, to be a child without a mother or a father was to be without hope. That's just the bottom line. It's, you basically were conceding, I'm not going to amount to anything in life. It was to have no future. Yes, adoptions happened in isolated situations. Uh, the Romans had their legal procedures for adoptions. The Greeks, those who held on to their Greek culture at the time, had their legal procedures for adoptions. But all in all, it seemed like the adoptions in the first century were, were rare and only happened. And this is what I find interesting about adoptions in the first century. It only happened if it benefited the adoptive family. There had to have been some benefit in order for a, for a father and a mother to go out and be like, okay, we're going to take this child in. They needed to be they needed to benefit from that somehow. But for example, he, here's what Roman adoption looked like in the first century. It will paint a good contrast, then I think a good comparison with God's divine act of adoption. Here's the contrast. The motive of Roman adoption was to continue the family line and maintain property ownership, right? 
So let's say, for example, you're married in the first century. You got four kids, four kids, right? Uh, and, but the problem is they're all daughters. Yeah, it's actually a problem in the first century. Uh, because when you die, how will your good name continue to live on? Uh, when you die, who, who's now entrusted with ownership of the property? Um, under, the, under the Roman patriarchal system, men had all the power and the privilege and the rights and the authority. So you can imagine how the motive, how, how there was a, a, a really stark motive to have an adopted son, to have a son, right? One who could you know, continue the line. And here's the deal with that. It's actually incredibly selfish. The mo- that motive is incredibly selfish. Not so with God. God's motive to adopt is selfless, not selfish. And because God is selfless in his adoption of his children, his children become beneficiaries of a gracious act, which leads to the point of comparison between you know, Roman law and divine adoption. There's actually some overlap in what's good about both. When a son was adopted into a Roman family, you know what? He got all the rights of a natural-born son. All the rights, all the privileges. The same idea holds true within God's adoptive system or economy. When you were adopted into God's family, you were given rights and privileges that far exceeded any of your expectations. Right? To be adopted means you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's crazy when you think about it. The Most High God. When you were adopted as a son or daughter, you were adopted into a family where the Father was the creator of the universe, right? That's crazy. To be adopted means that the storehouse's doors that contain the heavenly blessings, go back to verse 4 of Ephesians 1, the storehouse with all these heavenly blessings, the doors were opened right up for you, and all these heavenly blessings just poured upon you. To be adopted... By God means you have a father who is unselfish, who is loving, who is caring, and wants the very best for you. So, earthly adoptions are a powerful metaphor for heavenly adoptions. And the Bible speaks loudly about temporal and spiritual adoptions. Temporal meaning earthly, and then of course spiritual adoptions, divine adoptions. So let's take a closer look now at God's benevolent will to adopt undeserving children of wrath and uh, sons of disobedience, (laughs) because that's what you were. Go to to Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. And God adopted you, taking you into his loving family. I want to take a closer look at Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, just two verses, right? By asking several questions, several questions. When, how, and why. So if you're big into taking notes, you like things kind of mapped out for you, giving it, giving it to you here. When, how, and why. When does adoption take place? When were you adopted? It's a good question. Then how were you adopted? What was the means in which that happened? What was, what was the adoption agency? You know, how did it happen? And then why? Why were you adopted in the first place? Ah, those are, I think all those are really uh, helpful questions. And I hope they're helpful for you as you kind of look at the text here. So let's begin with the questions, and I'll go in order. When does adoption take place? First, before joining um, the team of folks who came here to Iowa to plant Redemptional Church, I was a pastor in the Twin Cities for numerous years. And um, one of the, st- I mean, I was a pastor over youth in particular. And on Wednesday night, we were having worship, and one of the students came up, and she just says to me, Hey, Pastor Sean, I'm like, Hey, what's up? She's like, It's my gotcha day. And uh, initially, it was kind of funny because I'm like, like, is she making a joke that I just clearly don't understand? Which, you know, wouldn't be the first time I didn't get a joke that somebody said. Well, what I realized uh, a little bit later, one of her friends came up to me and said, well, her gotcha day means it was the day her parents brought her home from the orphanage. Uh, The girl who was Russian was adopted out of a Russian orphanage. So instead of a joke, it was like a day of celebration. And so we did celebrate it. Once I understood, I'm like, well, let's get a cake and let's, let's celebrate. You brought home. Praise God. For this young lady, her gotcha day seemed more important than her birthday. 
right? Y'all like celebrate birthdays. Well, for her, it's like her, her gotcha day was more significant than her birthday. If you're a Christian and the sovereign God of the universe has adopted you, here's the question you can answer for yourself. When was my gotcha day? Because if you're a Christian, you have one. You have a day when you were you went from orphan to child of God's family, you know, brought into God's family, and you were, you know, the son or daughter of the Father, the God, a heavenly Father. Your gotcha day is more is the most important day of your life. It is the most important day of your life. Like, you know, Sharice and I, we, we got married, you know, over 14 years ago fond memories of that day such a significant and an important day made a covenant together it was it was a great beautiful day never forget it right you know what's more important than that wedding day my gotcha day i mean it's just true the day god saved me well we've already seen in ephesians uh, 1 verse 4 that your gotcha day was purposed before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, another word is used to describe when your adoption was planned. The term used in verse 5 is closely tied to the word chosen or elect that you see in verse 4. Here's part of verse 5. In love, he what predestined you, predestined us, for adoption. Now, word predestined. Uh, a lot of people get uh, tripped up in that word. I'm going to need to explain it. Um, what does it mean for God to predestine you? It means God marked out or determined your destiny beforehand. He marked out and he determined your destiny beforehand. It does not, ma- does not matter what age you were saved. It does not matter. God still marked it out. So if you were saved when you were young or older, whatever, anywhere in between, God marked that out. The sin you uh, committed cannot keep you from God if he predetermined to regenerate your cold, dead heart. Like predestined and predestination can be like a heady theological term. And its meaning is undoubtedly debated among people interested in, you know, really anyone interested in theology. But it's really significant because it does talk about that gotcha day. But I want to dismiss, I think, a few views of predestination because we want to understand a correct understanding uh, of predestination, especially as it is tied so closely together to what we read in verse 4, verse 5 about being elected or chosen by God. Now, some people think that God chooses and predestines a group of people, say the church, and not individuals. Like, I've heard that before, and I'm like, huh, I don't get it. Tell me more. <laughs> by moving away from an individualized election, Calvinism, which is what I believe, I believe I'm a Calvinist, you can use that language if you like, but a Calvinism becomes neutered all of a sudden. Now, I think the Bible speaks about election and predestination in both ways. I don't think it's an either-or proposition. God loves individuals, and he loves his church, which is made up of adopted individuals. From Ephesians 1, right? If you just go to Ephesians 1, you can certainly internalize and reflect on what God has done for you. You. you can make that personal. The more troubling interpretation of predestination is that some people think that God, like in eternity past, pulled out a crystal ball and looked into the future to see who would follow Jesus Christ. And those people became like adopted. Uh, there's one problem with this particular uh, view. Let's call it the crystal ball view. Look at the crystal ball. God's like, hey, all right, uh, Johnny's going to choose to say the prayer and follow me. Sally's going to do the same thing. There's one one problem with that view. It's not in the Bible. It's really not in the Bible. I plead with people all the time, show me anywhere in Scripture that affirms that kind of understanding of election or predestination. It simply just does not exist, period. Further, if God did pull out the crystal ball and looked into the future to see who would become a Christian, then God did not choose at all, right? What are we doing with the word electos, right? Uh, The word for chosen or elect. What do we do with that then? 
Um, if God did not choose and predestine you in eternity past to be adopted as a son or daughter, then we need to grab our Bibles and begin to pull passages and whole chapters out of the Bible. Because you can't make sense of a ton of scripture if you hold to that kind of understanding of predestination. It just, it simply doesn't work. Like, you're going to have to, you're going to have to tear out this particular passage from Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. Take a, take a look at that if you got your Bible. It says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, there's that word again, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, there's that word again, he also called and those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. (laughs) That's a great passage, man. That's an awesome passage. It's a beautiful passage about the work of God to save. Again, does foreknow and predestined mean God pulled out the crystal ball? No, not a chance. God foreknew and predestined you for adoption because he wrote your future in eternity past. It was God who wrote your future in eternity past. I mean, consider predestination with uh, the terms authorship and uh, ownership. Let's just use those terms. Who is the author of your life? You or God? That certainly isn't you. Who's the owner of your life? God or you? Certainly isn't you. Like imagine with me for a moment that uh, you wrote a novel, right? You you, uh, got the itch one day, you wrote a novel, got published, now people are reading it. Uh, The novel obviously has a plot line, has uh, characters in it. There's character development in it. Well, because you are the author of the book, you know the beginning from the end. Like, you know the beginning from the end. You're the one who determined it and planned it. You have chosen how the hero will overcome evil and how you have determined how the villain will be destroyed. There are characters that you highlight as good, others that are bad or whatever. Well, when someone else picks up the book and reads the story, they do not have the liberty to make changes, right? They're reading your story that you determined. You put in the details, and the details will not suddenly change. The story and the story's pieces have been determined. And all the reader reader needs to do is like grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up, and just enjoy the story. So when did your adoption take place? God wrote you into the story before the foundation of the world. And at just the right time, God regenerated your heart. Your heart that was dead. He regenerated your heart and gave you the gift of faith. Which is why you are now a son or daughter of God. So that's the how. The second question we now need to tackle is, excuse me, that was the when, now is the how. How do we, how do we know, how did adoption take place? Let's look back at our Bibles in Ephesians 1. It says this in verse 4 and 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The short answer to the question is you were adopted through Christ and to Christ. It's crazy to me uh, how emphatic the Greek language, so if you don't know, the the New Testament was written in Greek, we call it Koine Greek or Biblical Greek from the first century. And it's crazy how the Greek language is highlighting the how of your adoption. It's it's crazy. The the English just does not do justice here. Like it's almost tempting to to pause for 30 minutes and put the Greek up on the screen and just show you how it's all kind of working together beautifully but we don't have that kind of time and that'll just bore you. (laughs) Uh, But there's no getting away from the fact that the how of your adoption is 100% through Christ and to Christ. It's just crazy how that all just kind of comes out beautifully in this particular passage. The how is one word, Christ. At the very least though, since we're not going to do that, at the very least, let's observe some contours about how your adoption has taken place through Jesus Christ. First, The act of adoption is solely because of God's grace to give you faith to believe in Christ. You had no authority, no power to tell God to adopt you. 
You have no authority to do that. You have no power to do that. A lot of people think they do or they want that kind of authority and power, but you don't, right? You have no authority or power to tell God to adopt you. Further, there is no way for you to kind of like meander into God's family. You like being sneaky, you know, trying to get into God's family. You know, maybe if I like come in the back door or something like that, maybe he won't notice, but at least I'm in the house. Yeah, that's not how it works. Not how it works at all. You know, the same principle is kind of true with earthly adoptions, right? What I'm trying to get at here. Children who are adopted, you know, generally speaking, you know, and if they're younger, younger children, do not have a choice, right? It's it's not like you're asking, you know, the six-month-year-old child who's just been adopted, hey, um, do you want to go into the family? Can't even talk, right? There's no choice. They don't have the choice. It is only because of the will of the adoptive parents that the child is taken from the orphanage or wherever and into the new family. It's the will of the adoptive parents. You know, it is grace alone that you are a part of God's family. Yeah, if anything, that should humble the heart. It should, it should humble your heart. It should humble Sean Powers' heart. If you believe what you read in Ephesians 1, there is no room for pride in the heart. None. Because it's all solely a work of grace by God. So that's a little bit of the how. And like another point about how you were adopted. This would be the second point of that. Your adoption only became a reality because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've talked a lot about Jesus and how it was because of God through Christ that were that we were adopted, that how, but more pointedly, more specifically, it's through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how you were adopted. The only path for God the Father to adopt was for the Son of God to take on the wrath of the Father for your sin and for the sin of the elect. That had to be done because God hates sin. You were able to be adopted because Jesus took your place at the cross Imagine that in your head for a moment. Like that should have been you at the cross. And Jesus is like, no, I got this for you. I'm going. And to show the world that Jesus had power over sin and death, we're going to celebrate this in a few weeks, right? He rose from the dead. He is alive. He is alive. He is risen. So God the Father sacrificed his one and only son so that you could be adopted. You know, in this world, in this world, right? Everything has a price. Everything has a price. If you want something, you got to give up something. God the Father gave up his son so that he could take you in as a son or daughter. How was your adoption secured? <laughs> Through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So that was the second point of how. The importance of the crucifixion and resurrection. You can't get past that. Now, here's the third point about the how of your adoption. You were adopted because God decreed your adoption. Now, it may sound like I am on repeat here, but the text is just really clear about God's sovereignty in the point of adoption. He decreed it. Look at look at the entire statement of verse 5. We read some of it, but I'm going to go to the latter part. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We just got done talking about that. According, this is the, the last clause of that particular verse, according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of God's will. Not your will. Not your will. You know, you get that in your head. It's not your will in which you were adopted. It's according to the purposes of God's will. In, a, you know, in addition to the theme of union with Christ, uh, the other theme that emerges from the first half of Ephesians 1 is the sovereign will of God. In verse 9, we will see the mystery of God's will. That's the language used, the mystery of God's will in, the, in redemption. And it was made known to his adopted children. The same idea is reinforced also in verse 9 when it says redemption took place according to the purposes of God's will. And if that's not enough, two verses later we read this in verse 11. In him, in God, we have obtained an inheritance, having been, here's that word again, 
predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? Whose counsel? <laughs> Not yours. God. His will. In, in Ephesians 1, when you see that word will, it, the Greek word is the same every single time. Thelema. It's used repeatedly in this particular chapter. How did your predestined adoption take place? According to the purpose and will of God. Some people will, will hear that or read this particular passage. And it could be like experiencing another Copernican revolution. It was for me when I read this passage for the first time. And I really understood what it meant to be chosen and elected uh, by God's grace. It's just a Copernican revolution. You know, God is sovereign all over it. What is the Copernican revolution? We're trying to make this, this, this uh, metaphor here, this example. Before the 16th century, almost everyone thought that the universe, as they knew it, like circled around the earth. Part of what's, what was going on is that everyone thought that everything kind of circulated around humanity. And that kind of thinking had a massive impact, not only on the sciences, but just on humanity in general and everyday life decisions. It was, it was a big deal to think that. You know, what Copernicus said was that all of a sudden, like, no, everything actually revolves around the sun. And they're like, you mean the earth revolves around the sun? He's like, yep, pretty sure that's it. And you know what? He was rebuffed. People did not like to hear that because it was a massive, massive paradigm shift. It was a massive paradigm shift and people did not want to believe that. But even though he was initially rebuffed, we know that Copernicus was correct. The same, the same thing is going on. The same idea holds true for some people when they're confronted with the sovereign will and purpose of God in salvation. The temptation is to make salvation man-centered. But the truth is, it's God-centered. The shift from a man-centered theology to a God-centered theology, especially in salvation, is cataclysmic. It's just like, your mind is like, how did, how did I not see this before? It is a paradigm shift. It changes how you view the world. It changes how you understand your adoption as a son or daughter of God. According to God's sovereign will and purposes, he took you into his family. It would be arrogant. Like, listen, listen. It would be arrogant to think you took God into your family or you inserted yourself into God's family. That's just arrogant. That's prideful. So how are Christians adopted into God's family? By the sovereign will of God through the atoning work of Christ. So we talked about the when, that was the how. Now let's get to the why. Why were you adopted? Why were you adopted? There are several reasons why you were adopted. For a moment, let me circle back to last week's sermon about God's love. If you didn't listen to it, I encourage you to go listen to that. The love of God, the Father, um, for you is so overwhelming that in your place that he gave his son Jesus to suffer and die. I know I've been talking a lot about the cross of Jesus Christ. A lot of gospel in this, ser in this sermon, and rightfully so. Because everything we're reading... It takes us right to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God's love for you is so overwhelming that he gave his son. His son died on a cross for you. The how of your adoption is wholly and entirely because of God's will through the son. And the why of your, of your adoption is as simple as this. Because God loves you. It's as simple as that. He loves you. The Father loves you so much, he sacrificed his Son. And the sum of who God is, as we saw in 1 John 4, is love. Go read 1 John 4. God is love. That is massive. That is profound. As I was connecting love of God with adoption for this sermon, I, I noticed this in the text. You know, In Ephesians 1, uh, verse 3 to 14, right? If you take that swath of Scripture, you do see several patterns. It's always important to, to see patterns as you're reading your Bible. For example, the, the entire passage is telling you about, again, your union with Christ. Therefore, we read over and over again 
you are in him, in Christ, in Christ, in him. But there's one time where this pattern actually shifts slightly. And it's when we read at the end of verse 4, going into verse 5, in love. So it's almost like in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in love, in Christ, in him, you know? It's like, whoa, that was a little bit of a shift. In love, God predestined you for adoption. So why were you adopted? Again, because God loves you. You can't say it enough. The point is reinforced at the end of verse 6. Take a look at verse 6 of Ephesians 1. He has blessed us in the beloved. It's, again, a bit confusing in the English, but it is literally saying that you've been blessed with heavenly blessings in the beloved one. I wish they would. I wish some translations would just would take that last word in verse 6 and say beloved one. Because I think that's what it literally is trying to say. That's what it literally says. The beloved one is Jesus Christ. Once you are in the beloved one, you are always, always, always in the beloved one. Like one of the fantastic consequences of your adoption is that you cannot become unadopted. Like once again, let's let's dial into the comparison between the sweet picture of earthly adoptions with your heavenly adoption. I've never met an adoptive parent who, once they signed the adoption papers, proceeded to rip up the adoption papers at some point in Christ. Never met those adoptive parents in my life. I don't think they exist. The opposite is true. The opposite of what we see with with adoptive parents is true. When parents adopt a child, they know it's for life, right? They, even though there are ups and downs with parenting, right? That's just, that's just normal, right? Ups and downs with parenting. They know they're in it until the very end. There's no going back. There's no, there is no unsigning the adoption papers. The adoption papers never hit the shredder. If anything, they're framed up and put on the wall. With God, the point is more pronounced. God will keep his adopted sons and daughters, not only until the very end, you know, when you die, but he keeps you for all eternity. (laughs) That's crazy. How remarkable is that? He keeps you forever, Christian. God's gracious and loving grip is greater on you than it is for you on him. When God grips you with his loving hand, he does not let go. You you see how there's so much security for the Christian. So much hope. So much to be thankful for. So much. In the last week, I read this story about a woman who saw the glory of God's divine adoption um, that corrected her, uh, some of her experiences uh, growing up in the church. And it was a game changer. And maybe it's going to be a game changer for you. I don't know. But I want to read you his, her story. And uh, I just want you to pay attention to the significance, the impact of understanding her divine adoption. Uh, this church-going woman says this, Adoption is attractive to me because it is the perfect antidote to legalism. <laughs> I mean, pause right there for a moment. I don't know a church that isn't tempted toward legalism, right? There are always like unspoken things that you, that people might, do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Things are just not in the Bible, right? And so there's no church that is outside of legalism to some level. And legalism, she continues, was the driving force in my life. I kept trying to be good enough for God, but despaired at how impossible the task was. At the very heart, I was afraid of one thing. At some point, I would do something terrible and consequently lose my salvation. Although the church I was raised in preached assurance of salvation, I often wondered if I believed it mostly because I just wanted it to be true. The confusion came from the fact that although the churches I attended said they believed in assurance of salvation, which we believe here at Redemptional Church, they preached a list of things one had to do to, quote, be a good Christian. If I'm, I got the feeling, she continues, that if you failed at any one of these areas, you were probably not saved to begin with. The study of adoption, she says, 
has clarified the confusion I once felt. Adoption is a legal procedure which secures a child's identity into a new family. God didn't choose to be our foster parent. We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. We don't have to worry day, day to day whether or not we are good enough to be a part of the family. In his infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of this family. Nothing can undo the legal procedure that binds me to Christ. He died to redeem me. He signed the adoption papers, so to speak, with his blood. Nothing can cancel the work he did for me. I am free from the fear of falling away. Hallelujah. What a great story. How just well written. And really makes a powerful point. That the impact God's love has for his adopted children. How that secures them for all eternity. And I give a hearty amen to that story. You too, if you're a Christian, are freed from the fear of falling away. And you can bask in the loving kindness of God because of your adoption. Now, one final reason why your adoption has taken place. It is that the glory of God will be seen in your life. The New American Standard Bible says it plainly. You are adopted, quote, to the praise of his glory and of his grace. To the praise of his glory. God's glory begins to be reflected and refracted in your life the moment you are adopted by God. The moment you went from an orphan to a child of the Most High God, glory began to shine on you, through you, and off you. And this leads us back to what, we, what we've already read in verse 3. We bless and praise God. We bless and praise God. As a result of what God has done, we sing praises to Him. We live in such a way that brings Him honor and glory. We worship and glorify God for what He has done for us. Without a doubt, all of Ephesians 1, when you just read it together, it, it leads you to worship. It leads us to worship. Now, I want to end with um, some personal and practical application. I already made mention of this, and I want to restate it one more time. You know, it's not unusual for people to have uh, issues with their earthly father. Uh, in my years of pastoral ministry, I have helped people uh, process hurt and pain that people have experienced from parents in particular, fathers. And while I've done that, and that's been good, and each situation is different, the path toward healing is oftentimes very similar. So if, you, if you've had a past issue with your earthly father, I, I want you to hear this. God the Father loves you so much that His Son died on a cross so that you could be His adopted son or daughter. Like, think about that. Therefore, you can trust your Heavenly Father. Like he's, he's already done the work for you. He's already opened the storehouse of blessings for you. He's just like, hey, son, daughter, here's what I want. Trust me. Trust me. He wants you to trust him. Your father, your heavenly father, always has your best interest. He always has your back. When he signed the adoption papers with the blood of Christ, an eternal commitment and covenant was secured. He is your father forever. Forever. Now, it's personal. So I, I trust that the Holy Spirit will, will use that and you'll be able to make personal application if, if there's something there in which you need to kind of wrestle with and work through. But hopefully it leads you back to the cross. It leads you back to your loving and gracious Father. Now for some more practical application. If God's people are to reflect God on earth, right? I said earlier, like, if you are a Christian, you're a mini Christ. That's why we have the language of Christians. Um, so if we reflect God on earth, then we need to think well about what it means to have God's heart for adoption. Like I've said, earthly adoptions are a, a reflection of a heavenly adoption. Uh, there are also just beautiful, uh, there are mercies and graces involved in um, these adoptions. 
you know, there, there are different categories in which we can think about adoptions. I think there's the formal kind and then some informal ways in which we can pursue God's heart for adoption. Um, formal adoptions, like I said, are a mercy for children and a joy for adopted parents. For parents who have already adopted, you know more than most of God's heart to adopt, right? You've made sacrifices. And maybe, maybe you haven't adopted, but maybe you've thought about it in the past. You know, the Powers House, we've thought about it, you know, you know, is God calling us to adopt? And maybe now is the time for you to reconsider and just seek God in prayer. Be like, you know what, are you calling us to adopt? In light of what we read in scripture, in light of, you know, the, the connection and the significance between earthly adoptions and divine adoptions, is God calling us to adopt? I'd leave that with you just to pray. Of course, not everyone will formally adopt, right? But everyone can have a heart of adoption. And what I'm just saying in kind of informal ways, who in your life is lonely and could use some company? Who in your life feels hopeless and could use some encouragement? Who in your life is spiritually orphaned and needs to hear about the grace of the gospel to save and adopt, right? Everywhere you go, there's a bunch of spiritual orphans and you got a message. And you can, you can speak that to them and trust God's going to do the work, right? Who in your sphere of influence is disconnected or like discouraged, right? I mean, there is someone in your life, like of all those kind of traits that I mentioned, all those questions I asked, there's someone in your life that fits those categories. Whoever it is, you have the opportunity to show the love of Christ to them. You have the opportunity to open up your home and just invite them in. Doors wide open, come on in. In small but intentional ways, we all can show people what it is that is underneath adoptions. Like what's underneath God's divine adoption? Well, I'll tell you, and I've already said it, and I'll end with these words. What's underneath adoptions? God's love. That's what's underneath. That's what upholds it. That's why it exists. God's love. Let's pray.